Our second reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom. A wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? And in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, and that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. As Paul looks back on the first time he went to visit Corinth, he remembers that he came to that city in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. And Laura, I guess as you prepare to go to Haiti, you may know a little bit how he feels. (coughs) We're not sure why Paul felt so intimidated going to Corinth. It was the furthest west he'd ever travelled until that point in time. But he was well used to arriving in cities as a newcomer and telling people about Jesus and meeting with a hostile reception when he did so. Maybe it had just been a whole succession of bad experiences for him. Thrown into prison in Philippi, run out of town in Thessalonica and Berea, heckled in Athens, Europe hadn't been a very welcoming place for him. Corinth was a cosmopolitan seaport with a bit of a reputation. One commentator compares the city to San Francisco in the days of the Californian gold rush. It was a wide open boom town with no place for the gullible or timid. Only the tough survived. It was no place for Paul. If he was feeling fragile or afraid before he arrived, the prospect of going to Corinth with its reputation would scarcely have made him feel any better. It was also a place where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. 
where skillful orators, public speakers took the limelight seeking recognition, popularity and applause. If you wanted to carve carve out a name for yourself as a successful stand-up, Corinth was the place to do it. But Paul was no such person. He wasn't the kind of person who stood up and instantly commanded the attention of an audience. When he got to Corinth, their assessment of him was that he cut a pretty unimpressive figure. His public speaking was nothing to write home about. In their eyes, he didn't come up to the mark. So there was good reason for Paul to feel inadequate. By their standards, he was. So he decided he wasn't going to set about carrying favour with the masses. He didn't come to impress them with his eloquence or his superior wisdom. He didn't even choose to talk about a topic that would have instant appeal. He simply said, for as long as I was with you, I resolved to forget everything except one thing. And that was Jesus Christ nailed to a cross. Paul made that the centre of his message, as it was the centre of his life. His message wasn't conveyed with wise or persuasive words, but it did come with God's power. The power, he says later, is made perfect in human weakness. Because faced with his own inadequacy, he had no choice but to rely on God. And God proved to be fully reliable. So he says when they responded to his message with faith, they weren't responding to his display of human wisdom or his rhetorical skill. They weren't responding to Paul, they were responding to the power of God working through Paul. Even that can be a bit intimidating when he talks about demonstrating the power of the Spirit. We might think about miracles he was performing. But not everyone reads his words this way. Oregon, one of the early church fathers, says that apostolic power was a style of life and disposition which struggles even to death for the sake of the truth. And that power is not necessarily displayed in miracles or impressive things happening, but more in the effect that Paul's message had on people's hearts. Speaking an unpopular message out of a situation of vulnerability, he proved the truth that unless power is given to the speaker by God, preaching cannot touch the human heart. But Paul's message did. So he didn't wow the crowds by performing miracles instead of being an eloquent speaker. He proclaimed the unpopular and controversial message that Christ was crucified for our sins to put us right with God. But because God anointed Paul with power, people responded by accepting Christ as their Saviour and Lord and committing their lives to him, forming the basis for a church of God's people in what was in many ways a pretty godless place. If there's a country in the world that merits the description of being godless or God-forsaken, some would say that Haiti comes near the top of the list. It's been described as dark, destitute, diseased, desperate, disenfranchised, dishonest, disorganised, disassociated, dangerous, and ultimately a dysfunctional mess. Those words were said about Haiti before the devastating earthquake of 2010 and the subsequent cholera epidemic that has led some people to ask whether God hates Haiti. He doesn't, of course. God's people are there. 
not least working in the Haiti Hospital in the Appeal, where Laura will be working. It is a Christian charity with a heart of compassion, a desire for justice. They say they choose to stand in the gap for the innocent and vulnerable, as Jesus did, offering health care without any form of regional, religious or economical discrimination. Helping to run one of the leading hospitals in North Haiti, they specialise in community health care, maternity, paediatric and neonatal care and rehabilitation services for adults and children. Jesus is there in his people working through the Haiti Hospital Appeal. And as you've heard, Laura will be there coordinating the teams of volunteers who work in that place. But I'm delighted to hear they also hope to make use of your degree in the use of sport and exercise in psychology at their inclusive sports centre. In a sense, Laura, it's no surprise they've snapped you up because the combination of sports and psychology will be invaluable in Haiti where so many people who are disabled as a result of the earthquake carry a massive stigma as a result and carry psychological problems on top of their physical disability. In a recent survey, the Haiti Hospital Appeal said that out of 66 families with a disabled child, more than three quarters of them said they'd face discrimination and abuse due to their child's disability. And of these people, 93% said they faced daily discrimination and abuse. Verbal abuse and discrimination were the most frequent, but physical and sexual abuse were also committed. Why are Christians in Haiti working with such people? Because they know that Jesus, God's Son, suffered verbal and physical abuse. When he was at his most vulnerable, he was left nailed to a cross to die. So God knows all about being a victim of human cruelty and the degradation that comes with that. And there's a real sense in which those working with the most vulnerable in Haiti who are victimised know that whatever they do, good or bad to these people, they are doing it to Christ. Whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, Jesus said, you did it to me. And whatever you didn't do to the least of these, my brothers, Jesus says, you didn't do it to me. Seeing Jesus on the cross transforms our perception of people and how we ought to treat them. And it's at the cross that God identifies with us at our lowest point. And it's because God has made himself known to us most fully through Jesus nailed to a cross that we know that Haiti is not God forsaken. Because at the cross, Christ experienced God-forsakenness. So that as Emmanuel, God with us, he would always be with us in the darkest and the most apparently godless places in the world. Laura, let me say, most of us here, perhaps all of us, are just full of admiration for you going to this place. And uh, sneakily glad that you're going, not, not us. But as much as you feel in your heart, wow, I could never go and do what Laura is preparing to do, going to Haiti to work with disabled people. As much as you feel that, make sure that you pray for her because she's going on our behalf. Laura, I understand that you're going to start work as soon as you arrive. 
pretty much. No lengthy orientation, no sitting in the sun, uh, no enjoying yourself, just going in the deep end. Some of the volunteers you work with will speak English, but there will be so much to get accustomed to. Strange city in a foreign country with a strange language, people speak Creole there, which you don't speak. There will be so much to take on board, so much to assimilate, so many things to get to grips with in your new location, so much that will demand your attention. While you're there, knowing, I know you won't, have to, you won't want to shut yourself away and hide away, you'll want to be part of all that's going on. So it's, let me assert again that when you fly to Haiti, you leave us behind, but you take the Spirit of Christ with you. And that will stay with you and he will never leave you nor forsake you. And it is the Spirit of Christ who will empower you so that God touches the lives of volunteers you're working with through you and maybe the lives of patients and staff as well as you work with them. You have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is God's gift to you. And that is the spirit that searches the deep things of God and will make known to you things that are beyond your normal human comprehension. It is the spirit who reveals God's gifts within you. And as there is so much going on around you, so much to get to grips with, don't neglect to look inside as well to draw on the gifts and the wisdom and the presence of God in your heart. Things that are there because you're going in the name of Jesus to serve him and to do his work. In any and every situation, may you know the mind of Christ, the peace of Christ, the presence of Christ, and the power of Christ. This is our prayer for you. And it's God's will for us all actually, whatever we do on a daily basis, even in the familiar surroundings of our daily work. It's God's heart that we should know the mind of Christ, the peace of Christ, the presence of Christ, and the power of Christ. Because where we are in the UK, though it's a lot more comfortable than Haiti, is still God's mission field. Whatever you do, wherever you go, abide in Amen.